Tonight, we continue our study. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, looking at verses 5 to 13. And tonight, we continue to examine Paul's concern for the Thessalonians, which is a very major component of the book of 1 Thessalonians. So our theme is, Paul moves from anguish to rejoicing as he hears how the Thessalonians are doing. So we, once again, begin by looking at the anguish that Paul is experiencing. We began that last week, and we continue, and uh, some of this is a review, uh, some of this is an advancement of that thought. But Paul is initially in a state of anguish as he considers the Thessalonians. And Paul's anguish had been intensifying. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, when he could bear it no longer, when he couldn't put up with the uncertainty as to how the Thessalonians were doing, uh, he was getting to the point, we're going to see that uh, he couldn't function even. It was just becoming an all-consuming concern on the part of the Apostle Paul. So Paul had to know whether or not the Thessalonians remained true to their profession of faith. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Now there's an interesting dualism, if you will, in 1 Thessalonians, in which there is a great emphasis on both prayer and activity. And we're going to see how they go hand in hand. Paul didn't just pray about certain things, and Paul didn't just act in certain ways, but the prayers and the actions were intertwined. Uh, They were built upon each other. And so we repeatedly read in 1 Thessalonians of Paul's prayers to God on behalf of the Thessalonians. In fact, we're going to look at a couple of those prayers uh, even tonight. But in addition to those prayers, Paul also sends Timothy to find out how the Thessalonians are doing, how God is answering those prayers, how God is ministering to the Thessalonian people. And his sending of Timothy is not a lack of faith on the part of the Apostle Paul. It isn't just that he's unwilling to let things in God's hand. I prayed about it. It's got to be okay. And he moves on. But his prayers bear action in the sending of Timothy to find out indeed what is God doing. So they go hand in hand. And that's a important takeaway from this first section, I think, of Thessalonians, to recognize how important it is that our prayers and our actions coincide. C. Paul was afraid that the evil one had undermined their faith. For this reason, we can bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
Last week I, I mentioned that Satan tempts, God tests. In the Greek, there is no distinction in that word. Uh, there aren't two words, one for tempting and one for testing. It's the exact same Greek word. The difference is in what that situation is intended, what the outcome is to be. So the very same situation in life can be on the part of the evil one a temptation in trying to undermine our faith and cause us to degenerate and go backwards in our walk with God. And that very same event in the hands of God is a test to prove our faithfulness, to encourage our faith, to help us in our walk with God. So it's not the difference in the circumstance, but the difference in the intent the difference in the activity of the one who is at work. So in the very same situation, Satan seeking to do us harm, God intending to do us good. D. Paul was afraid that all of his efforts in preaching the gospel were for naught. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain, that all the effort that he had put forth, the time, the energy, the sacrifice, would not have reaped the benefits that he was anticipating and that he was hoping for. Therefore, Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica to see how the Christians are doing spiritually. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. It's hard to learn about your faith. Application. First, it is hard to deal with uncertainty in life. Genuine concern wants to know about the welfare of others. Uh, true concern is not indifferent the people's circumstances, their needs, their hardships. And especially as you are at a distance from loved ones, you want to know how they're doing, whether they be overseas, you know, in the military, whether they be away at college, uh, whether they have just moved away because uh, they've gotten an, another job or they've married or whatever the case may be. But for... The concerned individual out of sight is not out of mind. Uh, and there is a concern. It's not just an interest. It, it's not just idle curiosity. But it's a genuine concern, a, a fear, if you will, that perhaps they've been lured away. Perhaps they are not really walking with God the, the way that they should. But it's not a judgmental concern. Rather, it's, it's a heartfelt desire for their well-being and for their spiritual prosperity. So there is no fault to be found in Paul for his anguish and his anxiety. This is not a weakness. This is not Paul sinning. This is not 
Paul demonstrating an anxiety that is to be foreign to the child of God, that he should just be able to say, well, God's got this, it's in control, and so let's move on. But it's commendable. It's commendable. Uh, It is praiseworthy. Uh, This is to be emulated. It's not to be rebuked. It's not to be shunned. Uh, It's not to uh, be rid of, and it's not to take some medication to get over it. It's uh, right. It is a genuine, heartfelt concern. Number two, Paul moves from anguish to rejoicing because he hears that the Thessalonians are continuing on in their faith. Timothy has returned and brought a positive report regarding the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3.6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news. Brought us good news. So this teaches us some things about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. First, this demonstrates Paul's confidence in Timothy. Uh, He dispatches Timothy, believing that he is going to be equipped, enabled, empowered, Uh, to uh, fulfill the responsibility that Paul entrusts into his care. So Timothy was up to the task. And then thirdly, Timothy's evaluation would be trusted. When Paul hears Timothy's report, he doesn't second guess Timothy. He, He doesn't question whether or not Timothy is spiritually mature enough to really make an accurate assessment He doesn't continue on in his uh, doubts and concerns. He's satisfied, which again says something about the trust that he has in Timothy. Number four, it's important if we're going to receive God's comfort that we learn to trust in and rely upon others. Uh, God places people in our lives to whom we need to be not only accountable but dependent. That God has made us as a people that we were never intended to be islands. We were never intended to be isolated from one another. And so the one of the uh, images in the scripture of the church, the people of God, is the body of Christ. And it's helpful to make a distinction when you think of those two images because they are, they are very distinct images about different aspects of what the church is. When the Bible talks about the church, the gathered together, the ecclesia, the people who are called out, it really refers to the body coming together in organization. And so we have... You know, in the, the books of uh, Timothy and Titus, what is lacking? Elders. Uh, so for a church, there, there has to be organization. There has to be elders. Uh, there has to be rule. There has to be authority. There has to be worship. There's the gathering together. It's, it's the people of God in organization. A corporate body that is worshiping and serving God. The other imagery is a body. And a body is not a corporate entity. It's not an organization. But a body is a whole. It's a unit. 
And in that imagery of the body, then each person is a, a member, and a member being not someone who signs a dotted line and raises their hand to become a member of the church, but a member is like a finger, a hand, an arm, a leg, a heart, a lung. It is a person with a particular gift that God brings together for the mutual edification and development of the whole. And so in that very purpose of God, you've got to be united with others. For a body doesn't function. A body dies if it doesn't have a heart. A body is blind if it doesn't have eyes. A, a body is deaf if it doesn't have ears. A, a body is immobile if it doesn't have legs. You see, a body to function is necessarily dependent upon one another and the right interaction with each other. And getting all of the direction from the brain, which is the head, which in the scripture is Christ. Christ is the head of the body, who is controlling the various members, the, the hand, the feet, the eye, the and the spiritual gifts. So what I'm saying to you is we see this at work, that one of the ways that Paul is going to be comforted by God is his interaction with Timothy. And that's why Timothy, Paul says that it's a big deal when he says that he leaves, he's going to be alone and, and sends Timothy to them. So what I'm saying to you is uh, Paul is going to be ministered to by, by Timothy. Uh, which also says to us that Paul needed to communicate to Timothy his concerns. Paul bears his heart. As do really all of the prophets, all of the people of God, um, it is quite startling if you think about it when you read the Psalms and understand that they are written for worship. And to just read the Psalms, read Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old from my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned to the drought of summer. Say, say la, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. My iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess to the Lord my transgression. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my, my sin. Uh, David doesn't hide his sinfulness. David owns his sinfulness. David talks about what he has done now. David sought to hide it for a year. But God did not allow that to continue. And so confronted David, and Nathan said, Thou art the man. But once confronted... And once confessed, 
David used his own experience as a testimony to God's grace and what forgiveness is all about. And David does it in such a way that his sinfulness is not engrandized. You know, sometimes you hear people's testimonies of their past, and it almost sounds like they're engrandizing their past. It's almost like they are bragging about their wickedness or their sinfulness or their escapades. That certainly is not, that is certainly not David. And what I'm saying to you here is, here is Paul, who is not talking about um, sin at this point. But he's talking about becoming undone. He's talking about becoming unraveled. He's talking about not able to function. And that can be pretty embarrassing for a leader. In fact, it might be thought that, you know, you need to hide that from people or, or you're going to disillusion them. Paul didn't allow himself to be put on a pedestal. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners. We have a tendency to put Paul on a pedestal, but he did not have a tendency to put himself on the pedestal. In 1 Corinthians, he refers to himself as the least of all the apostles. So here is Paul sending Timothy, and Timothy comes back and, and gives this good report. The report is, B, their commitment to God has remained strong. Good news of your faith. Their commitment to their fellow believers remains strong. And love for one another. In their distress, in their agony, and in their persecution, they had not turned against each other in the time of guilt, of, of uh, difficulty. No, it's a situation in which they, they didn't betray each other. which sometimes happens in persecution when seeking to be seeking to avoid the persecution for oneself to sell oneself out or to sell out one's friend in order to gain an advantage with a persecutor they didn't do that nor had they become totally self-absorbed when we are going through hardship or, or difficulty, it's easy to become self-absorbed. It's easy, easy to become myopic, to put blinders on. And all you can see is your own trouble. All you can see is your own heartache. All you can see is your own experience, your own misery. And not able to see somebody else's. Or not even to, to understand that they're going through very similar things easy to feel like I'm the only one that's experiencing this. I'm, I'm the only one. Or if somebody is going through this, well, yeah, it's a similar situation, but it, it's nowhere near as bad as mine. That was not the effect. They were remaining spiritually healthy. And their relationships demonstrated it. D, their affection for Paul remained strong. They had an appreciation for Paul. 
verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly. They always remember us kindly. First, they spent time reflecting on how they appreciated Paul. That is seen in the word remember. They reflected on Paul's presence with them. And they viewed it kindly. They were not thinking ill of him for having for leaving while under persecution. They were not disappointed in Paul. They had no negative feelings toward Paul whatsoever. They wanted to see Paul just as much as he wanted to see them. Notice the bold part in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. And long to see you, uh, excuse me, and long to see us as we long to see you in the same manner, in the same manner. How comforting that must have been for Paul. And what an assessment of the Thessalonians. For we marvel at Paul's concern for the Thessalonians and how Paul anguished and how Paul was concerned for for them. And now to find out that it was reciprocal. They thought of Paul in the very same way that he was thinking of them. They were thinking of the toll that it's taking on him. They were thinking of how difficult it would be for him to be away from them. They weren't saying, that rotten Paul, you know, he skedaddled out of here and left us in this mess while, you know, he's enjoying life. That wasn't the way that they viewed Paul at all. And they had the very same concerns for him that he had for them. Thirdly, Paul moves from anguish to rejoicing because he is greatly encouraged as a result of the Thessalonians' faith. As we have seen, Paul was in great need of encouragement. First Thessalonians 3, 7 For this is our reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction. It's difficult to distinguish between distress and affliction. Uh, They're pretty much synonyms. One seems to have a little bit more of an emphasis on outward kinds of experiences and the other more of the inner anxieties and thoughts. But it's a nuanced difference. But when you put them together... Number two, it's best to understand them together, describing the totality of Paul's anguish. In other words, it affected his whole being. It affected his whole being. It affected his mind, his thoughts. It affected his emotions, his distress, his his anguish. And it, it affected him physically. For we're going to see that he talks about later on that now he can live, that it was sapping his strength. Someone who is 
extremely depressed, knows the physical stress that it takes on the body. The uh, book of Ecclesiastes says that the rest of a laboring man is sweet. You know, you, you work hard, uh, you put in a good day's work, you're exhausted, and you go right to bed and right to sleep. And you wake up and you're refreshed. But when you're anxious, when your heart and mind is in turmoil, you roll around on your bed, you have difficulty falling asleep, you have difficulty staying asleep, you wake up. And David talks about the night hours, the weeping on his bed. And when you wake up, you're still tired. You're still tired. It's tough to get out of bed. And you can get to the point where you just say, it's, it's tough to keep pushing. I'm exhausted. Paul says, when I could bear it no longer. And number three, it was affecting all aspects of his life and ministry. It was all-consuming, if you will. And so I, I use this passage from 2 Corinthians, for it helps us to understand. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. <laughs> so he's talking about it physically, but we were affected on every side, conflicts without, fears within, who comforts the depressed. So Paul referred to him on himself on other occasions as, as being depressed, having these physical limitations as well as the inner conflicts and fears. But now Paul is comforted. Verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted. That is, Paul has experienced a relief from all that he was going through. The weight has been lifted. That oppressiveness goes away. And we're going to see that, that Paul is ready to rejoice. Paul is ready to give thanks. Paul is happy and delighted. For Paul is reassured the Thessalonians, verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you. About you. That's the specific comfort that he has received. No longer are they a source of anguish for Paul. What is comforting Paul is the Thessalonians' faith. For this reason, brothers, in all our stress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. First, he is comforted knowing that they are a people of faith. That is, that their faith has remained strong. And so he is grateful. But secondly, therefore, Paul knows that God will continue to uphold them. Or we noticed when we were in chapter 1, that Paul says, I know that you are of the elect, that God has chosen you. So now he's comforted because he knows their faith is genuine. And if their faith is genuine, then God is going to see them through. Then 
the promises of God kick in. That he who began a good work in you will perform it today of Christ. That no one will be able to snatch you out of his hand. That the evil one cannot allure you away. So once Paul knows that their faith is real, it's genuine, he's got reason to give a great sigh of relief. Because he knows. He knows that God is going to keep them. E. Paul is reinvigorated for the work that he has to do. He says, for now we live. For now we live. What a strange statement, for now we live. What does that mean? Well, I think it means these things. First, Paul could get on with his life. He could function again. He could give himself to other things at hand. Paul could enjoy life. You know, we say, now, this is, this is living. This is, this is life. Paul could enjoy life. Paul's emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being were all entwined with the well-being of the Thessalonians. This teaches us how demoralizing and all-consuming the cares that we have concerning our loved ones can be. And also how reinvigorating, how wonderful it is when we know that they are doing well and that God is caring for them. It's teaching us an important element of getting this relief, of getting this help. Application. We should not minimize the effect that the well-being of our loved ones has upon our emotional, spiritual, and physical health. It is difficult for parents when their children aren't walking with the Lord and when they see them making decisions that are not Christ-honoring and they know that it's going to bring heartache to them and to others. And to know that it's not going to bring glory to God but dishonor to God. And knowing that it's not going to help their brothers and sisters but rather it's going to be a deterrent to their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a, that's a weight for a parent to bear. That's tough. That's tough. You don't wake up in the morning and just put on a smiley face like everything's okay. It's tough to be in a marriage that's falling apart where people are contemplating divorce. When people are questioning the faithfulness of their spouse, it's debilitating. And we need to understand that and know that because so often people will put on a smile because they don't want to bear their, their soul to others, but be sensitive and just realize that even though they may have a smile on their face, realize that they have an ache in their heart. Understand how difficult that is. And then recognize the rejoicing that takes place 
when marriages are reconciled, when forgiveness is experienced and granted, when the wayward child comes to faith. The scripture speaks of the great rejoicing that there is in heaven. Parents rejoice. Loved ones rejoice. And we as God's people need to rejoice with one another when we see God's hand at work restoring and healing and bringing about that spiritual renewal. So the application. We should not minimize the effect that the well-being of our loved ones has upon our emotional and spiritual and physical health. What a joy it is to know that our loved ones are doing well. How difficult it is when we are consumed by grief and uncertainty over the spiritual well-being of others. And then fourthly, Paul moves from anguish to rejoicing because of what God has done and will do in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul cannot thank God enough for all that God has already done in the lives of the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3.9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God? Building on 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So as Paul hears this report from Timothy, he knows that God has chosen them, he knows that God has loved them, and so he gives thanks to God. Because that's why they believed. It wasn't Paul's persuasiveness. It wasn't the winsomeness in which he presented the gospel. It was the regenerating work and grace of God. B, Paul cannot adequately express the joy that he has as a result of the Thessalonians' faith. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we render to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. He is so happy for them. So delighted in them. The cloud has been lifted. He again sees more clearly. See, Paul could never pay God back for all that God has done for him and ultimately the Thessalonians. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? John Flavel. Uh, great Puritan writer, said this, everyone loves the blessings of God, but a godly person loves the God who blesses. Let me say that again. Everyone loves the blessings of God, but a godly person loves the God who blesses. To see beyond the things that we are grateful for, and understand the source of those things for which we are grateful. To realize God's activity in this. So he's not 
just heaping praise on the Thessalonians. For they are not what is distinctive. It's not that the Thessalonians are so different from all the other people on the face of the earth. Paul isn't just commending them because they have a, an inner strength or they have a resolve or they have a perspective or somehow they have done something to hold on and maintain their faith. Paul is not flattering them. He's thanking God because God has done this. God has kept them faithful. God has kept them strong. Which brings us then to point five. Paul describes his prayers to God concerning the Thessalonians. First, Paul prays with a fervency. First Thessalonians 3.10, as we pray most earnestly night and day. It is good to understand that Paul's comfort regarding the Thessalonians does not lead to apathy, but even more fervent prayer. This is not reason to say, okay, I don't need to pray anymore. This is reassurance of how valuable prayer is. You see the difference? And that's what blessing should do. Blessing shouldn't lead us to apathy. Blessing should lead us to more prayer. Realizing that, wow, prayer really is effectual. It really does bring things to pass. Secondly, Paul prays that he'd be able to personally fellowship with them once again. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. But now, but now the motivation is different. Previously, he said that he longed to see them to see how they were doing. Now, he says, that we may see you face to face, see. Paul prays that he'd be able to come and minister the word to them, and notice the end of verse 10, and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul knows that their faith is genuine. Their faith is real. They are truly born again. They're part of the elect. So their faith was strong, but it was still not complete. There was still more for them to know and to appropriate, which is the remaining of the book of 1 Thessalonians, for which Paul now gives them more instruction, more teaching. Number two, here we learn how important other people can be in our spiritual growth and development. And while they could get along without Paul, they remained faithful without Paul's presence. Nevertheless, Paul's presence and instruction would be very helpful and, in fact, needed. They didn't need Paul to maintain their faith, but they needed Paul to complete their faith. They needed Paul for more instruction, more learning, more development. And it's important to make a distinction that our faith doesn't rest on any one person. It isn't a person that 
is ultimately responsible for our faith. It's God. But we are dependent upon one another for, for growth and development, for maturation, for people that can provide us an example, for people who can provide us with a deeper understanding of the scriptures, a person that can help us see the circumstances we are in life and what's the Christian response to those circumstances. So B, here's a positive view of the spiritual dependence that we have upon others. God places people in our lives to help us grow in our faith. The Thessalonians understood and appreciated that fact. They were longing to see Paul. They appreciated Paul. They appreciated his ministry. They appreciated what they had to say, and they're thankful for this letter that is coming to them. Paul then prays for the Thessalonians, and this prayer consists of three requests. So we've got two prayers going on here. And this second prayer consists of three requests. First, that God would enable Paul and his co-workers to return to Thessalonica. So, uh, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Secondly, that God would cause the believer's love to continue to grow and overflow. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now what is important to note is that prayer needs to precede and accompany instruction. Or I don't want you to miss that the prayer is in verse 12 of chapter 3. Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in your love for one another. That's the prayer now the instruction is going to come in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and following. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then he's going to go on and talk about what that love looks like. And we'll look at it when we get there. But my point is, he's praying, and then he's instructing. That should always be our approach. That there would not be a dichotomy between prayer and instruction, prayer and learning. You know, when we read the Bible, we're also asking God to open our hearts and minds to understand, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. We also aren't just saying, God, teach me your truth, and we have our Bibles closed, and we expect God just to drop, you know, we pray for wisdom, and, you know, I think sometimes people have the idea that if I pray for wisdom, it drops out of heaven. And all of a sudden, I have it. But God has ordained that the wisdom comes through his word. So when we're praying for wisdom, we're really praying to God to help us understand and appropriate the wisdom of God. For in James, where that comes from, that we're to be praying for wisdom, it goes on to talk about those who hear the word and are not doers of the word. They are not living in wisdom. It goes hand in hand. Hand in hand. Our gospel witness 
Our prayer for people's salvation goes hand in hand. We just can't pray for people to be saved. We have to share the gospel with them. And at the same time, we don't just share the gospel with people. We are praying for their salvation. It is a cooperative effort that God has established for us in which we are dependent upon God and at the same time recognizing our duty and responsibility and privileges before God. And so see that God would cause his work to prosper among them. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here we see the need for God's enablement and blessing if our work is to prosper. For Paul is praying that God would bring to fulfillment the work of Timothy. For look at how these two things go hand in hand. First Thessalonians 3, 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. He sends Timothy to do this work, but he's praying for God to bring it to pass. Both are needed. Paul is sending Timothy to establish them in their faith. He's praying to God to establish them in their faith. To pray without sending Timothy would be ludicrous. And to send Timothy without praying would be ludicrous. It's talking about this commingling of dependence and responsibility and privilege and duty. So three, we should not separate prayer and our service for God, for both are essential. Conclusion, we should be fully concerned, truly concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people to whom we minister. In turn, we should appropriate, appreciate those who minister to us. Prayer and ministry go hand in hand. It's very comforting to hear and see God at work in people's lives. God is to be praised for his faithfulness and caring for his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, help us to be a people of prayer and action. Lord, help us to be able to recognize duty and privilege and responsibility at the same time to recognize inability and helplessness. Oh Lord, may our prayer life never promote inactivity. And Lord, may our efforts and energy never supplant or replace our sense of dependence and need upon you. Oh Lord, help us to work hard. And at the same time, recognize how empty that work is without your your spirit, which was Paul's concern that he would labor in vain. Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Help us to realize more and more that all our efforts and energies, apart from our dependence upon you, is manifested in prayer. It's so futile. And Lord, our prayers, 
without our energy and our activity and our obedience and work are so empty. Lord, help us to understand all that you have called us to and promised to equip us and enable us to do. Help us to get this balance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.